Well, we are nearing the end of our series on the Beatitudes, and this morning we're looking at a Beatitude where Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Or some translations say, they will be filled. And I know there's an expectation that if we're talking about hunger and thirst, that I have some good food stories for you, because that's sort of part of my reputation. My friends are like, yeah, when we listen to you preach, it's always like food story, kid story, gospel, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like that's it every single week. And I'm like, yep, pretty much. That's all I got is food and kid stories. But when I was a kid, I'm going to combine these two. This is a really special story, kid and food. When I was a kid, uh, we lived in Springfield, Missouri, and I think I was probably five. My mom could tell you exactly how old I was. One night we were having dinner, and that night my mom made chicken for us. And, you know, being the little foodie that I already was, I had a lot of opinions about the moistness of chicken and how it should be prepared. And on this particular night, I found the chicken a little bit, let's just say, dry. And so I let my mom know, I, f- I think your preparation was a little too long. Uh, this chicken is a little bit dry, and I would not eat this chicken. And finally, you know, parents, you've been there. Finally, my mom was just like, I'm not making you another meal. Like, you eat this or you go to bed without dinner. And I chose to go to bed without dinner. And the story goes that I woke up the next morning shaking because I was so hungry. And I walked out at like 6 in the morning to find my mom. And I was like, can I have ramens? Like, I was like so hungry. And the legend goes that I never have missed another meal since then. Um, But, you know, hunger can make us do really interesting things. And the Bible uh, chooses to use the metaphor of hunger and thirst to teach us things about the human heart, that we don't just have physical hunger, but we have spiritual hunger, Um, that we hunger and thirst for many things in life. And Jesus here in his teaching called the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, he's speaking of hungering and thirsting as an unrelenting, desperate thing that is part of human nature. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The psalmist in Psalm 63, 1 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I don't know how thirsty, I don't know what the thirstiest moment in your life has been, but the psalmist is describing someone who's in a wilderness, in a desert, who doesn't know if they're going to drink, have the drink that they need to live, and and that's the sort of desperation, hunger, and thirst that he has for God. I've heard it said that You don't really know what hunger is until you don't know where your next meal is coming from or you don't know when your next meal is coming. And we were, my my 10-year-old and I were watching a cooking show yesterday and they were raising funds for organizations that do something about a phrase I was not very familiar with and it's called food insecurity. And at first, Caroline was like, what, that doesn't, what, what does that mean? They're insecure about the food that they're eating. It didn't make any sense to her. And I said, I think it means that the source of their food is not secure. In other words, food insecurity means they don't know where their next meal is coming from. And believe it or not, there are adults and children in our country that have issues of food insecurity. And so you don't really know hunger. And I've never been there. God's blessed our family. I've never experienced that. But I've known hunger in different ways. And what Jesus is saying here is that there's a hunger and a thirst that is so desperate. He says, I so desperately need you, God, that I hunger and thirst for you as someone who is on the verge of dying. Everyone hungers and thirsts for something in life. And um, the question to answer to know what do I hunger and thirst for most is to simply ask yourself, what is my deepest desire? What do I want the most out of life? What's my, what do I daydream about? 
What is my vision of the good life? What am I chasing after? What fills my mind? Is it that opportunity? Is it that career path? Is it that relationship? Is it that moment? Is it that experience? But everyone has a hunger and thirst that drives them. Last night I was watching a little bit of uh, the Winter Olympics and I was thinking of these Winter Olympians who are pursuing, really in a sense, they're all pursuing the same thing, but they're all pursuing it for different reasons. Everybody wants to walk out of there with a medal, specifically or especially with a gold medal. But I wrote down a list of reasons why people compete, why Olympians compete. For some of them, it's just they just want to win, that they're competitive, and they're just driven to get on that medal stand. Others, it's, the, it's not just winning, but they want to be the best. They want to be historically good. They don't just want to be better than the people they're competing against in this Winter Olympics, but they want to break records. Other people out there, because they want to prove something. They have someone that they want to prove something to. Some people are out there because they want to make their family proud. They want to make their town proud, their city proud, their, their country proud. Some Olympians are there because they see this as a path to fame and popularity and getting on late night shows and getting sponsorships. Some it's the wealth and the opportunity that comes with being a famous Olympic athlete. One of my favorite stories about the Olympics I've told before is uh, from the movie Chariots of Fire, 1924 Olympics. And there were these two runners that this story, Chariots of Fire, is about. One's name was Eric Little. He was a Christian, a long-distance runner uh, from Scotland. And the other one's name was Harold Abrahams. And he was a sprinter from England. And as they were getting ready for the Olympics, the media would come up to them and say, why do you, why do you run? Why are you here doing this? And Harold Abrahams, this English sprinter, said this. He said, I run because running gives me 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. What he was saying is this. When the starter gun goes off, I have ten seconds to prove I'm worth the space I take up. Now that's real hunger. That's real thirst. And that sort of hunger and thirst will drive people to do amazing things, but it also will drive people into great unhealth and great danger. And Jesus here is leaning into this metaphor of hunger of thirst because he knows that everyone hungers and thirsts for something. The question is this, can the thing that you hunger and thirst for actually satisfy you? Can it satisfy you? Or even at its best, does it either make you hunger and thirst for more and more of the same thing? It was great that I won this medal, I got the silver medal, but now I need to come back and win the gold medal. It's good that I won the gold medal this year, but in four years, I got to come back and I got to defend my title and I got to win the gold medal again. It's good that I proved something to my dad, but now I have to prove something to this person. And for the entirety of our lives, we have this hunger and thirst that even when we get a taste of it, it just makes us need more of it. And then for some people, when they get it, it just redirects them to their hunger and thirst to something new. They got it and they thought it would be enough and then they realize it's not enough and now they got to go look for something else. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be satisfied. What are the people of the kingdom satisfied? And this idea that we hunger and thirst for righteousness and we're satisfied with the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? I want to help us understand that together this morning just with three ways of looking at the righteousness of God. We are satisfied first with the perfection of the Father. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 48, later in this same chapter, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. 
We are satisfied as those who know God and serve God with the perfection of the Father. What this means is that we delight in his perfection. We delight in his perfect ways. We learn to trust in him. That even when we don't understand what he's doing in our our lives, even when we don't understand what he's doing in this world, even when we wouldn't choose the journey that we're on, we realize we have a father who is perfect. And he's perfect not just in power, but he's perfect in his purposes. And that's where the rub is, right? Trusting God's purposes even in the midst of our struggle. Even in the midst of our sorrow to say, Father, not for a moment in my sorrow, in my grief, in my struggle, did you for one moment cease to be perfect. You are perfect in all of your ways. And are we satisfied with the perfection of the Father or are we always questioning the plans and purposes of the Father and we're looking for satisfaction in our plans, in our purposes, in our agenda, in our idea of how life ought to go. And Christians learn to be satisfied with the perfection of the Father, to trust in his perfect ways, but also to embrace his perfect truth and to be satisfied, listen, to be satisfied, to live life his way. And we live in a society, in a world which is certainly not interested in living life God's way. Everything is being redefined. Everything is being reshaped. Everything is being questioned and poked and prodded at. But those who are faithful to God say, God, I trust that you know best and that the ways in which you tell us to live our lives in Scripture These are the perfect ways to live. And these are not to ruin us or to hold us back from joy. These are to protect us and to bring us into deeper joy. It's in living the way that God created us to live that we actually find the freedom that we are intended to experience in him. And so it's the perfection of the father. The second thing here that we're satisfied with is the performance of the son. Now, I always think it's interesting, sports fans, I'm a big sports fan, and Super Bowl's next Sunday, and it's the Bengals and the Rams, and I know all the Bills fans were all kind of crushed because we know we could have got there, we could have won it this year, just didn't work out, Patrick Mahomes. But so the Bengals and the Rams, and not a lot of Bengals and Rams fans in upstate New York, although we do have a very passionate Bengals fan in our church and a very passionate Rams church, or Rams fan in our church. But whatever happens next Sunday, whichever team wins, if the Bengals win, then our friend Mark Iqbal, who's a, a Bengals fan, he's going to say, we won. And if the Rams win, then our friend Patrick Conway is going to say, we won. But the thing is, is neither of them had anything to do with the game. But that's the way sports fans are, right? We don't just say our team won. We take ownership of it because we're the ones who really put in the effort and the energy and the emotion and all that rooting, cheering power that makes a difference in the game, right? And so we yell out, we won. But when we say we won, we know what we're really saying. What we're really saying is they won, but we get the benefits of their win. They did all the hard work, but I get to buy the championship shirt and wear it around and brag. They won, but I get to celebrate. They won, but I get to enjoy this moment. They won, but I get to brag about it because their performance changes something about my life. Now, when we talk about the performance of the son and we look at Jesus Christ giving his life on the cross and taking upon himself the sins of the world so that we can have the forgiveness of the father and the mercy of God, we should look at that and go, we won. Not because you did anything. You, the only thing you and I did was contribute the sin that made the cross necessary. But we can say we won. Why? Because his performance was on our behalf. His work was for us. 
And so now we get to celebrate the win. We get to own the win as if we won, but Jesus performed in our place. And to be satisfied in the righteousness of God is to be satisfied with the performance of Jesus. And one of the ways that you'll know you are not truly satisfied with the performance of Jesus is that you are a slave to works righteousness, which means this. You're a little legalistic. You're a little determined to prove how good you are by doing the right things and following the rules, and you judge people who don't follow the rules the way that you follow them or don't have the same convictions in their life that the Holy Spirit has placed in your life, and you're working so hard to earn something, and it's like someone at home like desperately trying to score touchdowns in their backyard to make a difference in the game on TV. That's what it's like. Jesus has already performed for us in our place. Our, jo- our joy... And our role is to receive his work, rest in his work, and rejoice in his work. You'll find nothing more exhausting than trying to manufacture your own win. Jesus has won for us, and so we can receive what he's done. And there's two ways that we need to think about the work that Jesus did for us. And I want to share these two terms with you. Maybe this will help you. Jesus' passive obedience and his active obedience. Both of them he did in our place. I want to explain to you. His passive obedience is what he endured in our place, the human experience, rejection by others, the penalty of the cross. But Jesus' active obedience is what he accomplished in our place with his perfect obedience, his surrender to the Father's will, and his performance. So his passive obedience is what he allowed to come upon himself, what he endured for us, taking the penalty of our sin. But with his active obedience, that he got it right everywhere you and I got it wrong, he accomplished something for us. So in other words, the performance of the Son, what Jesus Christ has done for us, it didn't just clean your slate so you can now start getting it right. It not just cleans your slate, but actually gave you the perfect slate. His performance is attributed to you. His righteousness is accredited to you. When the Father looks at you, he sees you as if you lived the life that Jesus lived. That's what it means to have the performance of the Son on your behalf. And as we begin to believe that truth, does it change the way we live? Absolutely. Radically. But we first have to believe and receive the performance of the Son. One of the best summaries of this is from Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, maybe my life verse, 521, for our sake, God made to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul, in a nutshell here, gives us a substitutionary aspect of the gospel, that God made Jesus, who never sinned, not just to sin, but to become our sin. He actually took our sin nature upon himself, Why? So that we might have his nature of perfect obedience and righteousness. In him, we become the righteousness of God, so the performance of the Son. And then we also are satisfied, not just with the perfection of the Father, the performance of the Son, but the presence of the Holy Spirit. In John 16, Jesus says something shocking. I think it's probably the most shocking thing he actually says in the Gospels. He says, it's better for you if I leave. Better for you. I'm sure the disciples like, hold up. No way. I mean, how, we all probably think, if only we had seen Jesus. Have you ever think that? If I just saw Jesus open the eyes of a blind man, I would never doubt. I would never question. If I saw him walk on water. But, you know, the disciples saw all this, and they still doubted. To the end, they doubted. They doubted on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. After Jesus died, none of them thought he was going to be resurrected from the dead. And even at the ascension, even when Jesus gives them the Great Commission, it says in that passage in Matthew 28, some worshiped, but some still doubted. Right? 
So this idea that if we had walked with Jesus, it would have been better for us. Jesus says, no, it's better for you that the Spirit has come because the Spirit doesn't just walk with you. The Spirit dwells within everyone who believes. We have the presence of the Spirit. And Jesus says in John 16, 8, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, which means it's the Holy Spirit is that voice in our heads and in our hearts saying, don't do that. Don't go that direction. Giving you discernment to make wise decisions giving you the strength to serve. It's the Spirit's work in sanctification, but also the Spirit has a powerful work, not just in sanctifying us and making us more like Jesus, but the, the Spirit's work in sealing us for the day of redemption, the assurance that you belong to the Father. When Jesus said, I will send to you another advocate, he was saying that there was a first advocate and a second advocate. And Jesus Christ was the first advocate who came to, on our behalf to speak to the Father on our behalf. And Jesus now forever lives at the, seated at the right-hand side of the Father where he forever lives to make intercession for you and me. So even this morning, if you can picture this, Jesus is seated at the right-hand side of the Father and he's praying for you this morning that the Holy Spirit will open your heart to hear and receive from the word this morning that the words that are being spoken would not be lost on you but that you would take them into your spirit, receive them. This Jesus himself is praying for you this morning. He's our first advocate. But there's another advocate, and the second advocate is the Holy Spirit who was sent by Jesus. And one of the ways I've heard this explained is that the first advocate speaks to the Father on our behalf. Jesus says, they belong to me. He's mine. She's mine. So Jesus is speaking to the Father on our behalf, the first advocate. But the second advocate, the Holy Spirit, he speaks to us on our behalf. And here's what his primary message is. There's a first advocate. His primary message is, there's one who's already performed in your place. Receive his work. Rest in his work. Rejoice in his work. And so the Holy Spirit is this gift to us. The, righteousness, the, the way in which the Holy Spirit helps us with righteousness is the Holy Spirit reminds us of the righteousness of Jesus Christ on our behalf while also developing within us a righteous life, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so we are satisfied with God, because we were created to be satisfied by him and to be filled with him. In John 4, Jesus said to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never be thirsty again. We're created to be satisfied, our thirst to be satisfied with Jesus. In John 6, he says, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So Jesus continues to use this metaphor to communicate, if you come to me, all of your thirstiness is satisfied, all of your hunger is satisfied. But, and this is where we need to shift gears a little bit, the beatitude is actually a paradox because the beatitude says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And when you study the Greek language, it isn't, the verb tense for hunger and thirst is ongoing. So one way of translating is, blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for they shall, future tense, be satisfied or filled. And so the paradox is this, the people of the kingdom of God are satisfied but they still hunger and thirst. How does that work? How can we be filled, satisfied, and hunger and thirst at the same time? Now, the way that we make sense of this is, first off, we have to remember that the Beatitudes, I've said this a couple times in this series because it's important, the Beatitudes are not if-then statements. These are not conditional statements. It's not if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you will be satisfied. Jesus is not giving us a way to be saved. 
He's showing to us the nature of people who are saved and are in the kingdom. So he's speaking kingdom realities, not works for you to do to obtain something. So here's what Jesus is saying. When you see someone who is truly satisfied in God, you will notice in them an unbelievable hunger and thirst for righteousness. One of the indicators that someone is satisfied with the perfection of the Father, the performance of the Son, and the presence of the Spirit is that they have this hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, hold on. Didn't, isn't Jesus enough? Isn't that the whole point of what we just were saying? Didn't Jesus satisfy the requirements of the law? Yes, but righteousness in the Bible is talked about in three different ways. There's legal righteousness, which is what Jesus satisfied, that we are legally righteous in the eyes of the Father. In the court system of heaven, we are declared righteous because Jesus is our advocate and he stands in our place. There's legal righteousness, but listen, there's two other ways that the Bible talks about righteousness, and we have to understand all of these to make sense of this beatitude. Legal, settled, satisfied. But then there's two more, moral righteousness, the way in which we live. And then there's social righteousness, the way in which we treat other people, the things that we care about that are broken in this world. There's righteousness, so there's a few things that we hunger and thirst for. And the first thing is this, we hunger and thirst for righteousness in this world. In the earlier beatitude, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And in that message, we talked about the idea of lament which is this deep sorrow that is connected with the sorrow that exists even in God's heart for the brokenness of his creation, that this world is not the way it's intended to be. In fact, if you continue to read the Sermon on the Mount, it promotes social righteousness for women, for outsiders, and for enemies. And so the more that you are satisfied in Jesus Christ and receive his righteous work on your behalf, the more that you realize that you are legally righteous, the more you will be concerned with issues of social righteousness. The issues of injustice will inflame your heart, not because you have something to prove, but because you have received the righteousness of the Father and you realize this is not the way that the world should be. And this is why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, because the kingdoms of this world are not like the kingdom of heaven. And wherever you see issues of injustice, people who are being taken advantage of, the marginalized, the ostracized, the outsiders, the poors, the poor, anyone who you see who has these things that we talked about earlier of food insecurity, when you hear about food insecurity, if you love Jesus, something in your heart should stir and say, it's not right. It's not right. Something should be done. Something has to change. Because we have this hunger and thirst that the kingdom of God would be manifest on earth. And I'm telling you, someday in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no food insecurity. There will be no social injustices. There will be no racism. There will be no sexism. There will be none of the things that plague our society and have plagued our society for years. So someday if it's going to be like that, the heart of a Christian should be, let it happen now. In my home in my neighborhood, in my school district, in my community. And so we're passionate about issues of social righteousness, the righteousness in the world. But also there is a hunger and thirst for righteousness in our lives. So it's not enough just to care about the issues of justice around us. We have to be concerned about the issues of righteousness within us. That there's still a work to do. That there's still work for God to do in us and through us. And one of the ways I'm going to to have Antonia um, and Emma come up because we're going to sing in a moment. One of the ways that we know that we have this desire for righteousness in our lives is two things. Number one, we have a growing desire to be like Jesus. And we have a growing distaste for sin. 
a growing desire to be like Jesus. When I was a kid, you know, I'm, 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 I'll be 44 this year. So when I was a kid growing up in the 90s, like it, it, I fell in love with the NBA because I fell in love with Michael Jordan. Like I, I loved Michael Jordan and I loved the Chicago Bulls. And I mean, I, I just enjoyed watching so much. And if you were alive back then, you remember there was this famous commercial. And it was this song that I, I want to be like Mike. And everybody would sing this song. And I actually wanted to be like Mike. And I found out I couldn't jump or shoot or dribble. And so I gave that dream up. But I wanted to be like Mike. And everybody wants to be like someone. And one of the ways that you know that you're hungry and thirsting for righteousness is that when you think to yourself, who do I want to be like? You don't think about the person who is famous, who is popular, who has their life together, who has this. You're not thinking. You're saying, I want to be like Jesus. <laughs> That's my hunger and thirst is that I would be conformed daily more and more into the image of Christ, that the life of Christ that exists within me would become more evident to the people around me, that when people look at me, they would think, I bet that's a little bit what Jesus was like because of my kindness, my generous generosity, the grace that flows out of my life, this desire to be like Jesus, living out of our identity. You know, sanctification is not you doing good things to prove something to God. Sanctification is you living the way that God already sees you. God already sees you as perfectly justified. Sanctification is just getting in step with that. So great way to pray for yourself is, God, help me to live today the way that you already see me. You already see me as perfectly righteous in your eyes. Now help me to live that way. Help me to embrace that reality, to live out of that identity. I'm so much more than a dad, than a son, than a husband, than a, than a pastor, than a neighbor. I'm all of those things, yes, but first and foremost, I'm a child of God, created in the image of God, redeemed by the Son with a purpose, with an eternal destiny. And someday I will be made perfect in your presence and I will serve you on that day the way that I wish I had always served you. But don't let me wait forever for that. Help me today to serve you and to be like Jesus. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will have a growing distaste for sin. You know, as, as you get older, your taste buds change, right? How many, of you eat, how many of you like something now that you didn't like when you were a kid? Olives, maybe. I didn't like olives as a kid. I was with a friend recently who, every time there's olives, he doesn't like them, but every time he tries them, just in case. <laughs> and he ate one in front of me, and he goes, nope, still don't like them. <laughs> but I respect that, keep trying. We have grown, our taste buds change, right? I didn't used to like olives as a kid. I love olives now. A lot of kids don't like mustard when they're little, but then they learn to like it later. We have growing, changing taste. And as Christians, you should have a growing distaste for things that don't honor God. Things that you used to be able to endure and watch and sit through and listen to. It's not about being right, self-righteous, right? I'm not talking about being a self-righteous jerk. I'm talking about a heart transformation where you go, I don't think I can watch this anymore. I don't think I can listen to this anymore. I don't think I can, it's not that you, because there's something in you, your tastes are changing. You have a growing taste for the presence of Jesus and his goodness and a growing distaste for the things of this world. So when you get pulled into drama and conversations that you know you shouldn't be a part of or conflict and stuff like that, you begin to go, that's not who I am. I'm not gonna get sucked into that because that's not who I am. Because I hunger and thirst not for drama. I hunger and thirst not to be right. I hunger and thirst not to prove myself. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. And in my hungering and thirsting, I find both a satisfaction, but also a greater hunger and thirst. That's the paradox. 
I find a satisfaction in Jesus Christ, but in finding myself satisfied in Christ, I also find a growing hunger and thirst for him and for his ways. And now I hunger, and this is one of the things I pray for my daughters all the time. God, give them an appetite for your word. Don't let them be satisfied without a day of being in your scripture. Give them a hunger and thirst for your presence that they want to gather in church when there's an opportunity to gather. Of course, this is not the only place you can experience the presence of God, but there's something special about this. God, give them a hunger and thirst to pray and to cast their cares upon you and and help them to grow a distaste for fame, popularity, notice, control, power, all the things that go after our hearts. Out of our satisfaction for Christ, we can hunger and thirst for righteousness in this world and in our lives, and we can do it with the right motivation. We're not hungering and thirst for righteousness so that we will be satisfied. We're hungering and thirsting for righteousness because we have been satisfied. And it's that satisfaction that leads us to hunger and thirst. Harold Abraham said, when the starter gun goes off, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Well, they asked the same question to Eric Little, who was a born again Christian, a runner from Scotland. He became a missionary to China. And Eric Little said, I run because God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I hunger and thirst for righteousness because God made me to hunger and thirst for righteousness, not to prove something or earn something. And when I hunger and thirst for righteousness in this world and righteousness in my life, I feel God's pleasure and I sense his nearness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray together.